Hi, everybody. Uh, welcome back for our third lecture on Europe. This lecture will be, and this lecture will be taking taking a look at the political as well as the economic geography of the region. And I thought we'd start off with a, a background uh, how Europe has uh, evolved uh, for over about the last, uh, I guess, fifteen hundred years or so, or sixteen hundred years. Uh, I'm going to start from with the legacy of the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire controlled much of Europe uh, from about 300 BC to about 400 AD. So quite a long period of time, and it has left quite a legacy on the region. Um, the Roman Empire had a number of impacts on European society. First of all, the foundation of important European cities, such as Vienna, Frankfurt, London, and Paris. The creation of a road system that interconnected uh, much of the empire and, of course, connected these cities together. And, and also the creation of roads and bridges. Um, the end of the Roman Empire uh, came because it was too large to defend itself from inv invaders from the north. Uh, and after the Roman Empire, what we saw evolve was uh, feudal territories. Uh, this came about after the Dark Ages, when trading between countries um, uh, started to uh, 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 begin again. Uh, Feudalism is an economic system uh, that's based on a series of obedience to a person of a higher standing. Religion was the most important aspect of life. The peasants or serfs were protected from invasion by their lord in exchange for military service and agricultural labor. The obedience went to the top of the system. Uh, emperors and popes uh, thought of themselves to be vassals of God, so to speak. Europe was controlled by, num by numerous landowners uh, at this time. Then we start to see the rise of nationalism, which occurred between 1600 and 1900. Um, and a number of changes came about uh, in European culture uh, that resulted in this rise of nationalism. First of all, there was an increase in wealth due to overseas trade. We saw the scientific revolution brought about technological growth. And the Reformation ended the Roman Catholic Church's domination in political and social affairs. European governments became diversified, not depending on one person to make all the decisions, as in feudalism. Nations began to grow through territorial growth out of a core area. Nationalism is an idea of shared cultural and territory became a dominant idea in European countries. And you can see from the map here, this is uh, the European Union, um, I'm sorry, uh, members of the uh, North Atlantic Tre uh, Treaty Organization, or NATO. Uh, and we can also see what are the former Wa Warsaw Pact countries. And these were the countries that were aligned with the former Soviet Union. Which, and obviously, the Warsaw Pact has collapsed since the, uh, uh, since the um, collapse of the Soviet Union. And you can also see now that some of those NATO, uh, former Warsaw, Warsaw Pact countries uh, are also now part of uh, NATO. And this has created some controversy between uh, the West, the Europe, Western European countries and the United States, and Russia, uh, which we'll talk about uh, when we talk about uh, Russia and its neighbors in the next series of lectures. So now I want to talk about redrawing the map through war. In the 20th century, Europe's borders have, changed, have been changed by two, uh, two major wars, obviously World War I and World War II. World War I uh, lasted between 1914 and 1918, and uh, Europe was divided between two associations of countries. 
First, there was France, Great Britain, and Russia, which were the allies. And then there was Italy, Germany, Germany and the Austria-Hungary Empire, which made up the uh, axes. When Germany uh, and, its, uh, and its allies uh, surrendered, the Treaty of Versailles was convened with two goals, to punish the losers of the war and to create countries for different nationalities. The results of the treaty, uh, the results of the Treaty of Versailles, uh, obviously um, didn't work out that well because we eventually we had uh, World War II, and World War II was um, uh, there's a term called irredentism, uh, which is the recovery of territory that was perceived to be lost, and that actually uh, is uh, or lands that are occupied people of the same ethnicity. And so uh, when Hitler came to power in Germany, uh, you know, one of the things that he wanted to do was reclaim some of the lands that he perceived as being lost during World War I and also to reunite uh, the German people within the country of Germany, uh, the German people that were um, outside of the, uh, of the borders of Germany and wanted to uh, reunite those uh, people within the border of Germany. And so that the only way they could do that was to expand the border of Germany. And so he... Um, started to invade other countries to make that happen. So World War II uh, lasted from 1939 through 1945 in Europe. Uh, a worldwide depression in the 1930s had brought about economic hardship for Europe. Uh, as I mentioned, Germany began to an annex much of continental Europe. Uh, again, uh, the uh, excuse was to uh, unite the people, um, uh, uh, the German-speaking people, Within, within the borders of Germany. Europe again divided into two associations of countries, Germany and Italy, the Axis, Britain, France, the USSR, um, as the allies. Uh, the Axis surrendered in 1945, and the results of the surrender, allies divided Europe, uh, allies divided Europe uh, brings about the beginning of the Cold War. Okay. So let's take a look at the map. We'll go through the map here. So this is Europe in 1914 at the beginning of World War I. And you can see we had the German Empire. We also had the Austria-Hungarian Austria Empire. And then over here would be the Eastern European or Western European countries, uh, Britain, France, and so forth. Uh, at the end of World War I, this is what the map of Europe looked like. You can see Germany lost some of its territory. Um, Obviously, the Austro-Hungarian Empire was divided into uh, several different countries. You can see we have Czechoslovakia appears on the map, Austria appears on the map, Hungary appears on the map. Uh, we see uh, Yugoslavia now on the map, um, which is uh, much larger uh, Serbia. Uh, and, and then we also see at this time, which is actually pretty interesting, we now have uh, Lithuania. Uh, Latvia and Estonia appear on the map. And this is kind of interesting because these countries remained independent up until the end of World War II when they were taken over by the USSR or, and, and became part of the Soviet Union. So this is what the situation was at the beginning of World War, uh, at, at the beginning of World War II then, as Germany wanted to reunite people in Czechoslovakia, Austria, and so forth. So, uh, at the end of World War II, this is what our map looked like. Um, this is West Germany. So, uh, uh, you can see uh, Germany was divided between West and East. And we have Poland that now, uh, uh, we have uh, 
Czechoslovakia, Austria, and Hungary. Uh, and we could draw a line down through here. We would actually divide, or I'm sorry, we would draw a line down through here to indicate the Iron Curtain. Uh, and Austria was actually split at this time, at the end of the World War II, was split with half of it being in, uh, on the western part of the Iron Curtain, half of it being on the eastern part of the Iron Curtain down to uh, Italy. So much of this territory would have been considered part of um, uh, the sphere of influence of the USSR and part of the Warsaw Pact that we saw earlier. Uh, and then in 2011, with the collapse of the former Soviet Union, this is what, what our map looks like now. Uh, so this is Germany has reunited uh, East and West Germany. Uh, the Czech Republic, as I think I mentioned before, or Czechoslovakia split between the Czech Republic and Austria. And we also have Yugoslavia as a result of uh, the war in the Balkans split into several different countries as well. We'll talk more about that uh, in a little bit. So let's talk a little bit more about this uh, divided Eastern and Western uh, Europe. So uh, a divided Europe, East and West, Cold, uh, a Cold War geography. The U.S., U.K., and U.S.S.R. divided Europe. U.S.S.R. divided, uh, occupied Eastern Europe. The U.K. and the U.S. occupied Western Europe. Berlin, uh, which was the capital of Germany, was divided between the two. Eastern Europe was controlled by the U.S.S.R., as I mentioned, and these countries were used as a buffer zone, a region that would protect Russia from further European invasion. Uh, and, of course, they became uh, controlled by the communist parties in those different countries. Uh, Western Europe controlled by the U.S. and the U.K. The border between East and West was closed off uh, in what was called the Iron Curtain. Uh, uh, the constant threat of war between the, uh, there was a constant threat of war between the two groups. Two military alliances were formed uh, in Europe. NATO in, the West, in Western Europe, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, and the Warsaw Pact that we saw in the, uh, and we saw both of these in the map earlier, um, the Warsaw Pact in Eastern Europe. Military stockpiling and propaganda raised fear between the two groups. Um, and you, you can see, uh, this is uh, Berlin, this is the wall zone in Berlin, and uh, this is East Germany, the death strip um, near the uh, Iron Curtain and the, uh, uh, um, yes, near the Iron Curtain. Yes, absolutely, near the Iron Curtain. Okay, so the Cold War thaw began in 1989 with the election of a non-communist leader in Poland. Um, and the reason for this was the political instability within the USSR, or the Soviet Union, the desire for change from, East, uh, from uh, within Eastern European countries. The revolutions were nonviolent except for Romania, where the uh, political leader uh, resisted change and was essentially taken out and executed uh, by the people of Romania. Uh, revived nationalistic feelings in southern and eastern Europe. Czechoslovakia was divided, uh, as I mentioned before, between the Czech Republic and Slovakia, and something that's sometimes referred to as the Velvet Divorce. Uh, and uh, Yugoslavia divided, and we'll talk more about this in a few minutes. Yugoslavia was divided, but with a pretty devastating conflict. A new geopolitical stability? It's hard to say. Eastern European countries are being accepted into the rest of Europe. NATO has expanded into 
um, the former Warsaw Pact countries. The EU is, uh, is, is expanding also into the former communist states. Um, let's talk a little bit now about um, the Yugoslavia and the Balkans. As you can see, uh, the Balkan Peninsula is really it has a variety of different ethnic groups, and this has really created some problems. And you can see the numbers of different pe uh, groups of people and so forth in each of these, uh, uh, in what was the former Yugoslavia. So um, Yugoslavia and the Balkans, uh, it really has been a geopolitical nightmare. Uh, fortunately, at the time, uh, things seem to have quieted down somewhat, but uh, only because there's uh, forces in uh, United Nations forces and NATO forces in there, keeping the peace between uh, the, uh, the uh, disputing uh, ethnic groups. The war in Yugoslavia was really a three-tiered problem. Uh, there was local tensions between the ethnic groups within the former Yugoslavia. There were Euro Euro European problems, NATO, the EU, concerning military action in the region, and global in implications concerning military action within the region. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of the history of the region before 1990. After World War I, Yugoslavia was formed out of eight different nations uh, with three uh, religions, five different languages, two different alphabets. Yugoslavia was controlled by Serbia between the wars. Um, Yugoslavia was invaded by Germany in World War II. The Croats, uh, one of the ethnic groups in this region, supported uh, the invasion uh, as a relief against uh, Serb rule. So essentially the Croats supported the Nazi invasion of the country. The Serbs, uh, Serb uh, uh, royalists and pan-Yugoslavian partisans supported the Allies. Yugoslavia was united after World War II under socialism under a leader named Marshal Tito. This unification ended in 1990 when the former republics decided on the dissolution of Yugoslavia. After 1990, Slobodan Milosevic, uh, the leader of Serbia, wanted to keep all Serbs together, much like Hitler did with the Nazis, um, with the German people, I should, speak, I should say. Um, civil wars broke out against each of the republics. Slovenia and the Serbs quickly uh, were, in Slovenia, the Serbs were quickly defeated and Slovenia became independent. In Croatia, fighting continued until 1996. Bosnia and Herzegovina war raged until the peace, uh, Dayton Peace Accords divided the country into Serb and Mo Muslim Croat regions. Kosovo, uh, ethnic Albanians battled Serbs for independence, forcing NATO to bring about air attacks against Serbia. Even with the tentative peace agreements in, many re in, in these regions, the ethnic tensions remain and can reignite at any particular time. So that's a little explanation of the uh, problem in the Balkans. Uh, and like I said, it could really expand at any uh, particular time. So now we're going to move in and take a, take, uh, take a bit of a look at the economic uh, geography in the region. Um, and we can, we'll start off by talking about the Industrial Revolution. Um, the Europe's Industrial Revolution uh, probably began around the 1730s. Now, I want you to understand that, you know, uh, the dates are given 1730, 1750 for the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. That doesn't mean that one day uh, there was no industry and the next, you know, 
then, and then the next day there was industry. Essentially what happened was there's a, a variety of different technology or a variety of different innovations that occurred that um, contributed to the, uh, that came together to uh, create the Industrial Revolution. And obviously those innovations occurred over a long period of time. Many of those uh, innovations had to do with the harnessing of energy. Uh, and that allowed people to uh, uh, start to concentrate production in what eventually became the factory system. Uh, results of the Industrial Revolution. Uh, machines replaced people in many areas of manufacturing. Inanimate energy sources, water, steam, petroleum, uh, and then, of course, electricity uh, uh, were used to power machinery. Um, centers of change, uh, big, uh, the centers of change were in Yorkshire and Lancashire in the Midlands of England. Reasons uh, for the changes, available water sources. Uh, there was little control from guilds uh, who were groups of merchants who controlled the production of a certain product in this area. Easily accessible products, uh, wool from local area, cotton from colonies uh, that, uh, that uh, Great Britain or that England uh, uh, controlled in places such as um, such as India and so forth. Uh, local uh, locational factors of the early industrial uh, areas. Uh, the growth of the steam engine caused water power to become obsolete. So early on, the the uh, re industrial revolution was really based on on uh, water power, and the way that happened would happen is. Uh, they would harness water power by having the water run over water wheels, okay, or sometimes also referred to as grist, uh, grist mills uh, if we were doing uh, processing agricultural products. But as the water would t go over the water wheels, uh, the, uh, the wheel would then turn the machinery within inside the factory. Uh, so uh, this was used to power sewing machines in the textile industry. So the growth of the steam engine uh, really allowed uh, uh, factories to locate a, a away from water uh, and because we could now use uh, wood to, uh, cr uh, to uh, boil the steam uh, to use as uh, the energy source to turn the wheels, to turn the machinery and things like that. Uh, so uh, water power became obsolete. We could now locate in other parts. Iron and steel manufacturing became important. Coal became a cheap fuel source. And manufacturing began to form in those areas with coal fields. Uh, and that's essentially uh, what this map illustrates. Um, uh, you can see this is the hearth uh, area of the Industrial Revolution that I mentioned before in the Midland areas. But then as we started to use coal, uh, you can see we started to move into other areas. So the Industrial Revolution really diffused onto the continent in the Sambra Moose area of uh, France and Germany, or France and the Netherlands and Belgium, uh, into the Ruhr Valley of Germany, and then of course into Upper Celestia and the uh, Saxon Triangle uh, in um, Czechoslovakia, southern Poland, and so forth. And then, of course, our Po River Valley down in this area as well. Um, so um, along with this, London became an important port and financial center. 
um, development of other industrial regions, as I pointed out in the continental Europe. The first industrial regions formed in 1820 in the Sambre and Meuse region of, of France and Belgium. Uh, it was based on the textile industry because it was easily adapted to mechanization. Iron forges were uh, common, and really this region uh, evolved because of the coal deposits that were found in the local area. By 1850, another, a number of other industrial areas were created in Europe. Ruhr district in northwest Germany, the Saar-Lorraine uh, area in France and Germany. And you can see this would be the uh, Saar-Lorraine area right in here. This is the, uh, the Ruhr, and obviously this is the Sombre and Meuse as well. Uh, we have Upper Silesia in southern Poland, as I pointed out before. And of course, this uh, Po River Valley as well. These areas continue to be uh, important regions of industrial output uh, today. Uh, so, moving on and taking a look at uh, the uh, rebuilding of post war Europe, economic integration into um, um, economic uh, integration. Uh, re rebuilding post-war uh, Europe and integration. You can see uh, from this map we have uh, current members of the European Union. Uh, as the European Union has expanded into the former Warsaw Pact countries. Okay, uh, and then we have some countries that are applicants in, and, and this map is from 2011, uh, so this might be a, a bit out of date. Um, I don't, uh, at this time I don't think Macedonia has been uh, into uh, uh, allowed into the EU, uh, and I don't believe Croatia has as well. So I think this map is actually uh, pretty well up to date. But you can see uh, certainly the EU has expanded into those former areas. Uh, I'm going to ask you this question: Why do you think Switzerland is not part of the EU? And if you guess, it's because of Switzerland's uh, strong stance for neutrality. You would be absolutely right. Uh, the Swiss are afraid if they would join the EU, that would mean that because the EU is no longer just a uh, economic organization, it's also a political organization. So uh, if Switzerland would join the EU, uh, then it would have to go along with the political decisions that were made by the rest of the countries. And Switzerland, uh, because of its strong neutrality stance, uh, could not agree to that. Uh, and then the second question would be, why is Norway not part of the EU? And if you were to guess that uh, the people of Norway don't want to be part of the EU, you would be absolutely correct. The political leaders of Norway uh, accepted membership into uh, the EU, but when it was put to a referendum and a vote by the uh, population, they decided um, the people decided not to join the EU. They didn't see the benefit for themselves. Okay, so let's let's uh, let's talk a little bit about how this all came about, how the European Union came about. Uh, uh, first, after World War II, we had something called uh, the EEC and the ECSC and the EEC. Uh, so, in the 1950s, an attempt to probe promote economic integration led to the establishment of the ECSC, that's a little difficult to say, which is the European Coal and Steel Community, and that was followed uh, by the establishment of the European Economic Community. 
Uh, and so you can start to see, countries start to see the benefit of, of um, creating these economic organizations because it was really economic uh, disagreements that uh, contributed to the big, uh, uh, World War One and World War Two, and people didn't want to fight more wars in Europe. Uh, they were tired of warfare, quite frankly, and so they started to uh, unite. And they felt if they united economically, that could uh, uh, contribute to uh, greater unity in other affairs as well. Um, so the EEC, the European Economic uh, Community, started to evolve into the EU as more and more countries became members. In 1965, the Brussels Treaty uh, created a political dimension to integration. Okay, so that's what I'm talking about. We move from this economic integration to a more political integration, um, and, and when put to so that the countries become uh, uh, more integrated uh, politically, that could contribute to uh, the uh, smaller chance of warfare. The EEC becomes the European community. In 1991, following the Treaty of Maastricht in the Netherlands, the EC becomes the European Union. The European Union is concerned now also with supranational affairs such as a common foreign policy uh, and mutual security agreements. And that's why Switzerland uh, will not join because of the common foreign policy and security agreements. Um, Switzerland doesn't want to get involved in uh, Europe, Europe's wars with other parts of the world. Uh, the EU continues to add members, including the former Soviet-controlled Soviet communist countries uh, in Eastern Europe, as I pointed out, and others continue to apply for membership, as you can see from the map. Uh, we still have some countries that are applicants, uh, such as Iceland, and I pointed uh, out Croatia and Macedonia. Uh, let's talk a, a little bit about something called the Euroland. From 1999, much of, the, of Europe uh, moved to a common currency, the Euro. Uh, initially, 15 EU member states formed the European Monetary Union, the EMU, uh, or what's often referred to as uh, the Euroland countries. Euroland members increased efficiency. Euroland members increased efficiency and competitiveness of domestic and international business through this common currency because uh, it used to be that each country had its own currency. And so if you wanted to do business in, throughout Europe, you had to convert your currency into all the different currencies. But now with one currency, if, uh, if you're a U.S. business, let's say, and you want to do business in the Euroland, you only now have to convert into one currency rather than trying to convert into all the different currencies. Some EU members, for example, the United Kingdom, have reservations about joining the uh, Euroland countries, and as a matter of fact, has, has not. Uh, membership, uh, all, uh, actually, the Euroland and the adoption of the Euro uh, remains controversial, particularly with the latest uh, economic downturn um, and some of the economic problems that Europe is facing. Uh, and so it, remains, it still remains very controversial. Um, economic, uh, so taking a closer look at uh, uh, economic integration and disintegration, historically, uh, Eastern European countries were less uh, developed economically. Uh, the subregion is not as rich in natural resources, 
resources has re few resources usually exploited by out and the few resources that they did have were usually exploited by outside interests such as the Ottoman Empire, Germany, and then the former Soviet Union. Uh, the Soviet-dominated economic planning, which was con uh, referred to as command economy, dominated the region from 1945 into 1990. The centralized system collapsed in 1991, leading to, leading to economic, political, and social chaos. And so let me just um, um, tell you a little bit about what a uh, command economy is. The command economy is when um, uh, government bureaucrats essentially um, control the economy. They plan the economy. They plan what is going to be produced and where it will produce, be produced. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no set kind of, uh, you know, in capitalism, we produce things to make a profit. So there's a real logic of where things are produced to uh, lower the cost of production. Uh, there's a real drive to lower the cost of production uh, to, uh, to use more uh, mechanization so we can, can reduce labor costs and things like that. And obviously, the market uh, controls what will be produced uh, based on, uh, on consumer demand. In a command economy, you have none of that. Uh, in a command economy, uh, the goal is to um, put as many people to work as you can, uh, to provide jobs for people. Uh, therefore, there's no concern with economic efficiencies. Uh, and very often, uh, the uh, place of production would not be the uh, necessarily follow the capitalist logic of producing in the lowest cost area because very often to put many uh, to put a lot of people to work you have to locate where the people are and not necessarily uh, uh, base your location on economic efficiency uh, so it really is not a very efficient system uh, from a capitalist point of view um, certainly from a socialist point of view it would be a uh, an efficient system because it would be putting people to work and providing um, the things that people need uh, results of Soviet economic planning were mixed at the best. Uh, most farmers resisted national ownership of agriculture, and most productive land remained in private hands. But food shortages throughout, uh, uh, throughout the time period were common. Industrialization was developed, but overall regional experiences, uh, but the overall region experienced shortage of consumer goods because there really wasn't a concern with producing consumer goods. The whole notion during the Soviet area was to um, to industrialize as rapidly as possible, and that meant that uh, machinery and things like that were being produced uh, to uh, to enhance uh, industrialization. So let's talk a bit about the changes, uh, transition, and changes since 1991. Since the collapse of the Soviet Union led to forced economic integration of the region. Uh, this was real. It's really been a troubled period of economic transition, uh, and this has been compounded by problems with uh, Russia's curtailment of cheap natural gas and petroleum. Many Eastern European countries redir have redirected their economies away from Russia and towards the EU. Um, and you can see, um, for example, in, in the map here, we have regional disparities uh, in Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe. Most Eastern European countries have joined or are in the process of joining the EU, as we saw in the previous map. Some are doing better than others. For example, Slovenia and the Czech Republic are doing well, uh, less so for Albania. So these are Eastern European countries. You can see the Czech Republic, 
Slovakia, Slovenia are doing pretty well when we look at uh, their economic development, development in terms of GNI per capita. Uh, but you can also see that Romania and some of the other countries are not doing quite as well. Uh, and then, of course, uh, Albania and Kosovo are, are doing uh, relatively poorly in this, uh, in this, uh, in this time period. Um, now, Bulgaria, as you can see, we see a lot of the factories have closed down through the process of privatization. Um, so it's, you know, a lot of these factories were inefficient. Uh, and uh, when private entrepreneurs took over a lot of these businesses and industries in the former Eastern European countries, they closed a lot of these factories because of their inefficiency. So that brings us to... Um, and this is a natural gas pipeline uh, from Russia to Europe, and a lot of the uh, natural gas that uh, uh, European uh, that are used that's used in the European countries is uh, imported from uh, Russia and the former Soviet Union. We'll talk more about that in the next uh, several lectures on Russia and the significance of uh, oil and gas imports uh, to. Uh, uh, to Europe and other uh, and other parts of the world, uh, Bulgaria, as you can see, has been impacted by the German supermarket that has moved into the region. Of course, this has obviously uh, provided a lot more choice uh, than Eastern Germans, East Germans had uh, prior to the collapse of the former Soviet Union and the communist countries. So that brings us to the conclusions of uh, our lectures on uh, Europe. And I just want to tie everything together. Moving in the 21st century, uh, Europe faces uh, challenges of dealing with two different areas. Uh, while Western Europe is one of the wealthiest regions on Earth with a progressive approach to environmental concerns and ideas of nationalism um, could be giving way to a new pan-European identity in the form of the European Union. And this has heralded the creation of a single currency, obviously, the euro. It will still have to deal with the influx of immigrants from other regions and political, and the political tension that, that uh, has come from that, as well as de dealing with political problems in other regions. Eastern Europe has uh, different challenges, political strife, economic stagnation, and environmental degradation are problems that, uh, that Eastern Europe has to rectify before it can join uh, the, the West and a goal of all which is a goal of all Eastern European countries. So that concludes, as I said, our lectures on, uh, on uh, Europe. Uh, and uh, we'll be moving into, uh, I believe, into Russia and the former Soviet Union in our next series of lectures.